I've got wheels of polished steel. I've got tires that drag the road. I've got seats that selflessly hold my friends and a truck that can carry the heaviest of loads. I got a mind that can steer me to your house and a heart that can bring you red flowers. My intentions are good and earnest and true, but under my hood is internal combustion power. Satan is my motor. Satan is my motor. Hear my motor purr. It's always been a favorite cake song of mine. And uh, lately I've been thinking about how truly evocative it is of just the condition of being a, a liberal, late capitalist American subject. You, if you grow up in the middle class, if you grow up blessed, you know, with, with the fading beneficence of the post-war American economic boom that we're all slowly whittling away, if you get any glimpse of that, any grab of that, you get a chance to be turned into a, a, a person who's better positioned than almost anyone in human history to thrive. To thrive. Have the ability with your hands to create a destiny. Now, of course, it is all on the backs of the massive exploitation of others. This is without saying. But within the narrow sphere of the personal, you can feel like you have some control of the world because, you know, you have access to capital, uh, the lingua franca of the world, access to its markets, its beneficence, uh, a introduction into a bourgeois social uh, uh, network that is embedded and that provides you with, like, a real identity uh, that, that uh, off, acts as a social capital that can make up for a deficit in actual access to capital. You're in as good a position as you could be. You are. You get the best of like secular uh, uh, um, education. You get the ability to live a life well lived without having it constrained by uh, oppression and happenstance and conscious alienation. And yet, the engine, the motor of all of that, is this poisonous self-conception, this uh, imagined singularity called, you know, your ego and the, the satisfying of it. Because you can't satisfy your ego, it can only ever just be fed from outside uh, in the form of desires that are given to you to want and which make you take your beautiful car and drive it all over the fucking road in any way. Just drive you away from, from truth. Because that the, the, the motor is the devil. Uh, uh, so Jeffrey Tubin took his dick out, huh? And was jacking it? Is this what happened? took out his penis and was jacking it during a uh, an election simulator you say interesting I guess that's just the peril of the modern workplace am I right folks COVID hmm? just to think if it hadn't been for COVID we wouldn't have had that little hilarious uh, story to all enjoy so maybe it was all worth it might as well look on the bright side
Jeffrey, Jeffrey's tube, man. I do wonder how many people get off on being nude during Zoom calls, though, from the waist down or something. Because you'll never know, and that's probably appealing to some people. Especially since Zoom calls are so deadening and, and you know, they, they further alienate the workday by making even your place of, you know, your, your home uh, kind of a constant office and getting rid of any private distinction. Like, being able to assert any independence of that is going to be pleasurable maybe in some extent. And maybe if you really concentrate on it, sensually thrilling. So I wonder what percentage of people do Zoom calls uh, pantsless. Uh, I am wearing pants. I, I have shown myself to wear pants in previous streams in which I was moving around. So I think that the benefit of the doubt could be extended uh, that I am, in fact, wearing pants. But honestly, really, what's the difference if you think about it? Especially since you never know who else is pantsless. You sort of have to just leave it to fate and just act like nobody is pantsless or act like everybody is pantsless, whichever makes it easier for you to engage with them as fellow human beings. I will say that uh, I'm not going to talk too much more about that Good Lord Bird show but I did watch the third episode where they go meet Frederick Douglass. And it just seems very obvious to me. The whole thing just seems very, very surface level. I mean, I don't really see what it's, it, it's like a lot of shows now. It just feels like the Twitter hive sensibility expressed visually in a different context. Like here's sort of the hive mind of the, the Twitter received liberal left wisdom that all of the creative class who make all this stuff marinates in. What is that gonna? What would that be? And then they show, hey, what would that be when you're talking about the Civil War and and, and slavery or John Brown or what about if you're doing, um, you know, uh, rich people in the current moment like Succession, which is another show like this. It's just this reproducing sort of the received wisdom of of online left liberals, and that's just not interesting more than anything. It's dull to me because I can see where everything is going. I'm not going to be surprised or challenged in any way. I'm just going to have myself affirmed. But that's what people are looking for in art now. As we've had this settle for the swill of like this mass-produced uh, television, which is just getting worse as a medium while it becomes more hegemonic over everything, and film itself is destroyed as a, as a fucking genre and turned into just another type of streaming television programming. And I don't, I don't need that. I don't, I don't want to just see it reproduced and barfed at me like a baby bird, which is, uh, which is what we're getting. Yeah, we can't get any middle-brow movies, so we get middle-brow TV shows, but then the, everything becomes that. That's the problem. Is it's like it's the middle-brow film turned into an entire, the entirety of art, really. And I gotta say, that guy, the Jeff, the the Jeff, the the uh, the guy who plays Thomas Jefferson on Hamilton, who they got to play F Frederick Douglass, who I've seen in a bunch of things, 
I just don't like that guy. He's just not, uh, he just doesn't have, he's one of those guys who just, I hate to use the word soy, because people get, people think, oh, you're winking to the alt-right and you're creating a fash pipeline, but God help you, it is a useful descriptor of a certain sort of affect that you see with people, uh, with guys, trying to sort of accommodate the more, you know, feminized public space of this moment. Uh, and, and it's like, it's not bad, and it's not evil, and it doesn't mean you're brainwashed, but it is a certain sensibility. And this show, it's like, at that point, a character like that exists for like a soy infusion. Because that character, Frederick Douglass, is the imagined creators of this show. Like, Fred, John, John Brown is, a, is, is, is removed from us by his faith and, his, and the, the distance of his worldview from us. Frederick Douglass is a more worldly man, and we can imagine ourselves in his shoes, so he becomes the stand-in. So, of course, he embodies all of those characteristics. Ethan Hawke is a Trump supporter? Damn. That's a zig when I didn't think it would have been a zag. Hell yeah. That's pretty funny. I think you... Do you mean uh, he thinks John Brown would have been a Trump supporter? Because I don't think that... Ethan Hawke is a noted Hollywood lib. I'm being gaslit in my own comment section again. I don't know why the hell I talk to you people. Now, I don't think soy is homophobic because it's not about it's not about anything having to do with sexuality. It really is about like um, like a performance of uh, non-threateningness, and like if that gets coded as gay, that's just that's just that's not that's not a first-order intent. If it it's if it's there, it's 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 not intentional on my part. We love our TiVo, folks. We love TiVo. We love it. We love TiVo. Folks, you go beep, 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 and you get all the shows. You get every show. All of them. You know, I got to say, uh, the guy who's, uh, who, post, who, who people all found his, uh, his Trump impression, the guy on uh, Twitter, Man, it's really good. And it, actually, watching that, it uh, that's what reminded me. Actually, yeah, mine is terrible. Shit. It's, like, not even close. It's brutally terrible. Because that's an actual good one. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Mine's not even close to that. Terrible. I'm embarrassing myself now. I will stand by my accents, though, damn it. The accents are still good. Velma. And I am better than Adam, Adam Baldwin, who's is terrible. And Tifa. And Tifa. We love it, don't we, Soaks? We love to do the Trumpy. We love a Trump. We love him. So, uh... I do wonder how many uh, 
like uh, coups and assassination attempts, the CIA never got to run because they couldn't get Trump to sign off on them because he was too busy drinking milkshakes. How, how, and it's amazing. He might be like a genuine like Mr. Bean, like an anti-imperialist Mr. Bean who's just going around just destroying accidentally all of these you know, like finely woven uh, clockworks of intrigue and, and deep state political power. And he's just smashing it up without even knowing it, like Mr. Magoo in a construction site. But of course, people say, ah, you're, you're saying he's a dove or something? No, no, no. He's, he's got incoherent nationalist uh, uh, leanings. He could have definitely be brought into war, except for his individual narcissistic terror of losing and being seen as a loser, which is what stopped him from ever doing any big military action. Like, when they wanted brinksmanship with Iran, what pulled him back from the brink was that he didn't want to get owned. Because he had owned Jeb about the Iraq war, and he was like, why do I think it wouldn't happen again? And that's what stopped that from happening. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean there would have been a war, but he pulled back from the brink at several moments where presidential decision-making is crucial, just out of a naked fear of being made to look like a loser. Loser, folks. And, you know, if that speaks to anti-imperialism, it's just that, uh, it's just the anti-imperialism of his, like, narrow focus as a totally self-centered uh, uh, egomaniac, looking through a totally personal lens, and recognizing the weakness of American power, which maybe its, you know, planners are less concerned about. Because they know it doesn't matter if they win, it doesn't matter if every politician has this around their neck forever, uh, they still get their war. That's what matters. They don't give a shit who takes the electoral political flack uh, for when it goes bad or what doesn't get its objective as though there's ever an objective other than just maintaining the fucking war. That's the objective and expanding it. Changing the terrain, disrupting the enemies, maintaining revenue streams. But Trump is narrowly focused on his re-election, which is a similar reason that Obama kind of reined in uh, is Syrian uh, intervention. I know there was a ton of U.S. Syrian intervention, but the deep state, the blob, was clearly much more intent on pushing farther than Obama went. And uh, in most cases, like the, the difference there from a Democrat and a Republican is fear of electoral uh, blowback for the, 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 their narrow short-term interests from the American people in general due to their the fear that they have an innate hostility to failed American military ventures because they don't want to see people getting blown up for no reason in foreign countries because they don't get a benefit from it, at least not nearly directly enough to feel it as anything other than continual loss and, 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 and humiliation and trauma and waste. for. And whether that's because they're animated by some internationalist spirit that says that those people are just as much as uh, right to life as I do and that their suffering is mine, or if it's just narrow focus on the idea that there's a limited amount of resources and we shouldn't waste them on other people. One way or the other, I don't care if it's blowing them up or giving them schools. That's money and, and men and resources that we need here right now. Whatever it is, whatever strain of uh, uh, like moral calculus gets you to the point, there is this majority that wouldn't like it. And it's sort of the only millstone around the neck of the, of the deep state. But it doesn't stop the drive that underlies it. Because at the political level, there's never 
enough of an organized opposition, an articulated opposition to the very existence of the thing. And uh, sadly, Biden is not going to change that at all. The good times are going to keep rolling for the for the for the Draculas of the military industrial Silicon Valley entertainment fucking complex, Raytheon, Disney, Amazon. I did see Soderbergh's Che, but it was a long time ago. I should watch it again. I'd be interested to see. I remember liking it a bit. Somebody's banging a dang drum. Is it seven? No, it's six. I'm seeing the Chicago 7 movie tonight. We are going to be doing an episode on Thursday. That was inevitable. Apparently it's rich with Libri goodness and Sorkin-y nuggets. It's got all of our favorite things. It's got all of the specific Sorkin idiocy. It's got more general, delusional, like, boomer nostalgia and and uh, misunderstanding of the, of the 60s and It'll be interesting. We're going to hopefully talk to uh, Dave Anthony and Josh Olson from the West Wing Think podcast, who talk about Sorkin every week to talk about it. That'll be interesting, especially since apparently like they like the new left guys a little more than I think I do, and I know Amber does. So there might be some sparks there. We'll see. But I'm sure I've heard it's terrible, and that makes me very excited. Because there's nothing I like more than a bad movie with very high production values and a lot of good actors in it. Ooh, that's some of the best movie watching you can do. Is a just a bad, like, uh, uh, in some way, like risible film that's got a nice rich patina on it. Especially since there's so much, there's so little content these days in terms of streaming that it seems to pop out. Everything just seems like a slurry. We love our actors, don't we, folks? Oh, man. Barry, that Barry Seal movie, that was amazing. That's like a fucking definition of a limited hangout deal. Where they talk about Barry Seal, and they say, they say yeah, sure. The, the CIA hired him to run guns uh, illegally uh, into uh, Nicaragua to arm the Contras during the Iran-Contra scandal. Yeah, they, he did that. Uh, but he also, and he also, while he was doing that, uh, was moving a lot of cocaine for Pablo Escobar into the United States at the same time. And maybe the CIA knew about it and looked the other way, but most of the government didn't know about it. That's the official, and that's perfect example of a limited hangout because there is... the. The, the horror of, oh my God, like they're, they're, they're giving these guns, these drug dealers are arming these terrorists on behalf of the U.S. government. That's amazing. But the idea that the CIA is directing the flow of fucking cocaine into the United States in order to fund a fucking terrorist war in Central America, genocidal fucking attack. Uh, no, absurd. 
Where'd you get? No, look, we're telling you as far as it went. He did move drugs while he was moving the guns, and we maybe looked the other way, but, you know, at the end of the day, he was just a, an American boy who wanted to do good. And you know what? The fact that he was so ambitious about everything and just wanted money so much, doesn't that just really indict the entire American system, after all? Aren't we all to blame? Moving those crack rocks. Meanwhile, you're moving crack rocks. You're turning shit. You're turning pieces into weight. And then back into rocks. After having basically created the modern heroin trade during Vietnam. And then, in Afghanistan, you went from having a situation where the Taliban had been very successful in eradicating opium production. And it brought it into, like, into a near extinction. Like, it was on the path towards eventual uh, 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 extinguishment. And then the U.S. showed up after uh, 9-11 and after that moment, from that moment on, not till now, uh, Afghanistan has gone from something like in the single digits or, or like I think under 25%, I believe, of world opium uh, uh, production to 90? Like, oh, wow, we just, we couldn't do anything other than let that happen. Like these huge networks of, of uh, fucking, you know, uh, extremists and guns and uncountable amounts of untraceable cash just going to go out of the country without the U.S. having any idea where it's going. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, Charlie Wilson's War. Another Sorkin bomb. We am uh, honestly... The show goes long enough, we might end up doing every Sorkin property because I think we've talked about doing a Charlie Wilson's War episode, but we never got around to it. It is absolute dog shit. Now, not just from the standpoint of it's awful, typical, like, it's another limited hangout deal. Oh, we armed the Mujahideen. Oh, weren't we stinkers? Um, and then, oh man, Taliban exists, now exists. Darn. Fumbled the ball in the end zone. Guess what we get for being too cocky. But Sorkin dialogue, terrible. Philip Seymour Hoffman is the only good thing. He's, he's great as the pissed-off CIA guy, who, by the way, uh, was one of the guys who helped administer the fucking uh, the, the military coup in Greece that led to a wave of disappearances and torture. But the action and the directing, also dog shit. It was like Mike, Lee, Mike Nichols in his like, senescence when he was just making these boring fucking TV movies. And it's got this amazing... The only action scene in the entire movie, spoiler alert, is a, is a shot of some Mujahideen uh, shooting down a hind helicopter with a Stinger missile that had been provided to them courtesy of Representative Charlie Wilson in the Operation Cyclone. And it's just these two guys in sandals and, and headdresses standing on a rock that could have been in fucking Griffith Park. And then they cut to what looks looks uncannily like stock footage of a Soviet helicopter. And then they cut back to the guy and he fires the missile. It looks like an SNL sketch. And then they cut to more footage that, swear to God, looks like it's uh, stock of an exploding helicopter. And then they go, yay! Dog shit. It's bad. A Few Good Men, I say, is is his best stuff. 
But A Few Good Men is an unimpeachably solid film. I would, I would not really want anything else out of that movie. And, you know, it's also one of his first films. It's one of his first chances he had to uh, show off all of his tricks and shit. And I think the fact that it's a different context and it's different actors than his subsequently used over and over again, you can kind of enjoy the Sorkin stuff uh, without it hitting your ear wrong because it's not reminding you of the 500 other times he does that same thing because he has three fucking tricks in his sleeve. But it's still, I think it's entertaining. And Rob Reiner, who's certainly nothing more than a journeyman at best, uh, is pretty competent directing it. And of course, Nicholson is fantastic. I have more responsibility than you could possibly fathom. What's so funny about that is that he gets up on his high horse about this shit. And this is in the 90s, though. And this really does show how America was grasping towards the Cold War without even knowing it. How we needed to reestablish, like, the the threat matrix of an external enemy like the Soviets for our entire defense posture and our relationship to our military to make sense. Like, we have to find a new one. Because this is the end of the Cold War and fucking... Uh, Nicholson has this giant stem-winding speech that's supposed to like cut to the quick and make you question your assumptions as a pious liberal, uh, and it comes down to I'm afraid the Cubans are gonna get me. Even though I'm hanging out in a fucking, uh, I mean, this is a post-war world where America is the dominant hegemon of the entire globe. Everybody else is either building themselves up or putting back the pieces together, and this got their their colonial outposts. Uh, uh, in front of like a cowed economically sanctioned pariah state that we've like waged not unceasing war on for seven, 50 fucking years and he's good they're gonna they're five I sleep 200 yards from 5,000 Cubans who are trained to kill me it's like yeah they're gonna come over the fucking wire any day now it's 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 absurd in the moment but like our culture didn't have time 9/11 showed up just in time to like catch the foot as we were spinning off into nothing, like catch us on the next rung of the ladder, move us along. Oh, good. Now we make. Now the world makes sense again. Because for a while there, we were in a real fucking uh, uh, personality crisis. We were in a real, real crisis of identity there. Uh, and 9/11 came along, uh, Mosun, uh, either because it was an inside job and it was the state making it happen, or because we were literally just driving into it as a culture subconsciously because of our like Zardoz-esque death urge. To, to find meaning at the end of history because we've been so deeply accultured to this uh, barracks mentality and this apocalyptic framework of confrontation that our institutions could not survive becoming decadent. We could not survive the end of the Punic War any better than the Roman Republic could. And now we find, oh no, this uh, replacement has only accelerated the process because the process was always accelerating. It was just disguised by some freak moments of uh, uh, unprecedentedly um, ill-distributed capital accumulation after World War II. Pubic War. Indeed. Indeed. Indeed, sir. The Pubic War. Yeah. Because the alternative to that uh, apocalyptic confrontational framework is 
a climb down from our position at the head of this thing, a chance to put the gun down and like close our eyes for a bit and ha- and step down from our position as this global globustriding hegemon and also as the consumer of last resort and the and the primary uh just mouth and that means like not not a sta- not a, a drop in standard of living if you're talking about a like redistribution of of wealth if wealth is genuinely redistributed you could eliminate profit and replace it with public welfare in a way that reduces any kind of like felt material deprivation even if maybe there aren't many toothpastes you can choose in the fucking aisle it wouldn't matter because you wouldn't care because you'd have other things like fucking healthcare like roads you could drive on like uh, some sort of guaranteed government income slash job program Uh, I know those things are always fighting each other I don't know you guys figure it out those things could be achieved well like allowing other countries to uh, to absorb like a, a redistribution of you know of economic activity and we never had the political constituency for that because by the time the crisis came our political system was wholly subsumed into a totally separate class of humans like a, a, a that has almost no real participation from the working class at this point. And, and that the reestablishing that connection has, has to be paramount. Uh, someone asks if I will ja- carve a, a lantern, jack-o'-lantern this year. I already have, sir. Spooktacular! It makes me want to do a Twitch. Uh, can you watch like old movies on Twitch? Do like a Twitch Halloween, like movie night. Be like a Svengoolie type guy, like a local, uh, like hey, welcome to Chapo Halloween Theater. Whoa! Uh. That might be fun. I might do that later. We'll see if we'll see if I can get a night. I would definitely need Chris for that one though. Night of the Living Dead for many years was public domain. I don't know if it still is though. There was a while where any publisher of any like VHS company, whatever, could just put out a, a cop, uh, an edition of the Night of the Living Dead with any kind of aspect ratio they wanted or film. <coughs> Romero was pretty pissed about that. Although I got to say, the fact that the, he lost living in the in the copyright divorce with his co co producer. I think it was to his benefit because Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, I just feel like those are punchier than Night of the Living Dead. Now, Night of the Living Dead is perfect, but I just feel like Day of the Living Dead just doesn't have as much punch as Day of the Dead or Dawn of the Dead, most of all. Dawn of the Dead.
Molly's game is not bad. Molly's game is very Sorkin-y, but it's also zippy and entertaining. And one of the things that makes it fun is that the stakes are very low. I mean, obviously, he tries to build up Molly as a world-bestriding genius because he has to, because it's his protagonist, and he can't doesn't care about a protagonist unless they're as smart as he thinks he is, which means they have to be world geniuses. Uh, and uh, it's got the snappy dialogue, and it's just about her, like, her life, if she's going to go to jail or not. There's nothing about the fate of the Republic... There isn't. There aren't even like a lot of grandstanding around around like civil liberties in, in regards to the FBI uh, pr- prosecution, uh, and that made it reminded me that he's he is just he's he, he understands rhythm and stuff and, and what makes like dialogue surface appealing to people, what makes it smooth, even if it's you know not realistic. But man, he gets up his own ass. I watched Hubie Halloween. It was kind of cute. There were so many callbacks to the old Happy Madison films. I was like, ah, I feel like this is my like dying dream. Like I'm dying, and for some reason, as my brain is asphyxiating, the last part of my memory that's getting accessed is all of my collective experience of watching Happy Madison programming, and it's turning into this film in front of me that's suffused with elements of all of it, and I'm like turning all of these elements into imagined people in my past as I like bid farewell to this plane of existence. So it's fun. Uh, the 90s version of Night of the Living Dead is interesting because it really does, it changes the, the source material in a provocative way uh, because it switches things from in the original Night of the Living Dead there's Barbara and uh, Dwayne Jones, uh, the protagonist the hero, uh, and then the family with the bald creep and his uh, his, uh, uh, his pushover wife and their little sick kid uh, and in the original Barbara is basically catatonic the whole time and gets eaten by the zombies pretty much immediately when they burst into the house. Uh, and uh, the hero, Dwayne Jones, he shoots the dad, the mom gets killed by the girl, and then even though he survives the night, when he goes there out to look at what's gone in the morning, spoiler alert to a movie that's 50 fucking years old, uh, a local posse of people hunting zombies shoots and kills him. Uh, oh, snap. In the remake, the Tom Savini-directed remake, Barbara sort of is gets is the main character who, over time, kind of comes into her own, and uh, she escapes, like, I think joins the posse or something, comes back to the house, uh, uh, the hero has been zombified, but the dad is still alive uh, after being a craven piece of shit, and she kills his ass. So it's more of a girl boss version. It's more of a girl, an empowerment version. A feminist feminist retelling. The special effects are very good. It's Tom Savini, but it just doesn't feel necessary other than than that, you know, inversion. Tony Todd's good, though. Do I ever wake up with music in my head? Often. 
I'll, I'll go sometimes like a week or so with the same song and it'll just get stuck there like at the beginning like at Groundhog Day and with uh, I, I Got You Babe but eventually it just stops but yeah I'll have it happen a lot I uh, I watched the Cats movie recently and I got the uh, the Mr. Mistopheles song stuck in my head for a couple days there that one that one got wedged in real good yeah, there's no cat more... I think I forgot it now. There's no cat more... More dastardly? What is it? Never was a cat... Never was there ever... Yeah, that's it. Never was there ever a cat as... As pimp as uh, Mr. Mistopheles. I think that's it. I actually found uh, Cats is obviously, I think, bad from a dramatic perspective. I mean, obviously, the content is bad. Uh, it's just these dumb cats introducing each other for fucking uh, 90 minutes. I mean, that's it. They're just, hey, I'm this cat. It's, hey, I'm this cat. That's all it is. There's no structure. There's no story at all. It's barely even there. It's just an excuse for the song. So it's all about how good the songs are. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them suck. The big, most famous song from the thing, in my opinion, is awful, and I hate Memories, one of my least favorite songs on earth. Uh... Thumbs down to that one. Uh, but some of the other ones are fun. The Skimble Shanks song. Uh, of course, the McCavity song. You know, they're not bad. I really hated the, the whole thing. Really hated the whole thing with, uh, with Rebel Wilson and the dancing cro uh, uh, cockroaches. Grotesque. Uh, uh, Kafka-esque in a bad way. Bustopher Jones, revolting. Thank you for reminding me of something I blocked out of my head. Definitely the low point of the film was the introduction of the disgusting, simpering creature known as James Corden. Uh, just subsuming the screen and his elegenious, uh, uh, simpering uh, face. Ugh. Terrible. Terrible. He is one of those Brits who they just give us and say, here, you take him now. Like a cursed amulet. Like that trampoline that... Uh, he's like that trampoline that Homer gets from uh, Krusty. And when he goes to take it back, he takes out a shotgun and says, keep on driving. That's what happened with Corden. We tried to send him back, and the Brits were like, nope. We rescinded his visa. He's yours now. And it's like, I guess we'll put him on late night. Disgusting. Awful man. Simpering oaf. Talent void. But yes, uh, thumbs down to the odious Bustopher Jones. Boo to the odious Busted Jones. cavity is truly not there it's true it's true so oh this is one thing i wanted to clear up so the uh the hard done by outcast cat jennifer hudson who plays who sings the terrible uh, showstopper 
and is given the 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 uh, she's she's taking to she's taken to Jellicle Carousel at the end and put on a, a a fucking hot air balloon. That's just a euphemism for her being killed, right? Like being put down by like maybe the pound comes around or like somebody has to get kicked out of like the warm spot and freeze on the street. She's dying, right? It's 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 uh, euthanasia. I talked about euthanasia. Uh, two things. Someone wants to talk about Bolivia. I, I said my piece on Bolivia uh, on the show today. It'll be out later tonight. Good news for once, and for anybody who says cynically, and I know that the instinct comes to me to think it. This is all. This is only happening because Moss has been, uh, in some way, disciplined. That the message has been seen sent, and that ensures that there will be further. There will be compliance in the future. And you know what? There was certainly an element of that. To some degree, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have. They would have pulled out more stops, I think, if there was a real threat that they thought uh, that that uh, Moss posed an existential, you know, danger in any way. But uh, but at the same time, they only had to. They still had to give power back because of popular pressure, and that means popular pressure is still sufficient to advance like a unified interest uh, in the face of all of the uh, entrenched institutional deep state shit and the connections to finance and, and global. Uh, capital, and that you know, as conditions change, that power can be advanced forward, especially because you've got this victory under your belt. Like everything, everything is a double-edged sword. All all events have potential for disaster and an equal measure of uh, of triumph. And only time will tell. Seems like a cop out, but it's the only way to engage with the moment earnestly and in good faith when it happens, instead of just writing things off. Because you've already made a decision that can't be made until uh, conditions materialize. Uh, is Castro a contender for all-time chat? You know, I was talking to Brendan James about that the other day. And I think that was exactly what we said. I think we actually said Castro has to be the Chad of history. At least at least modern history, you know? The condition the, the, the industrial condition. How do you get more Chad than that? You're you're a fail son lawyer who uh, who has an absolutely failed attempt at a revolution, just a, a ridiculous adventurous uh, uh, action that makes you Get you in jail, where you could very easily have been executed, but instead you give a historical stem-winding uh, prison oration that gets you essentially a commuted sentence, and then you go to Mexico, and then you borrow somebody's boat and come back, and go into the mountains and take over, and overthrow the government from that position, and then look in the face of the the continent bestriding hegemon that had determined the fate of your po- country's politics since 1896. And, uh, 1898, I'm sorry, uh, and just say, fuck off, and then survive for 50 years of constant assassination attempts and undermining efforts, and meanwhile to, like, establish a system that is rooted enough in some sort of social project that it withstands the fall of the Soviet Union, which, which very few other socialist states could, uh, and then also... The death of Castro himself, the the guy who was supposed to charismatically hold the whole thing together, it's 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 mind blowing. 
And then, you know, just baseball player, cigar, the fact that he just had an instinctive understanding of how not to get killed by the CIA, uh, which, which scuba suit not to wear, just know that it's the one that doesn't have the fungus on it that's going to make you choke to death in the water. So that when, when the woman is sent by the CIA to kill you, you seduce her and then get her to confess that she's there to kill you and give her a gun and say, go ahead and do it and say, you can't do it because no man can kill me. Come on, chat. Well, I think the difference between Tito and, uh, and Fidel can be in part shown by the fact what happened after each of them died uh, and, and, now, and after communism fell. He had an ability to withstand... Uh, he, 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 had, he had created... He had helped coordinate the creation of institutions that were durable in a way that the ones created in uh, Yugoslavia were not. But I will say that, yes, one thing that Tito had to deal with, which uh, Castro did not, is the whole ethnicity problem, which is a real deal. Like, it wasn't entirely ginned up cynically by guys like Milosevic and Tuzman uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. It was certainly in part, but... It had been there, and it had been simmering. I mean, the, the Ustasha really did that shit in World War II. Like, that's not made up. Like, the, the fucking Czech, uh, the Croats did a genocide. They, they out-Nazied the Nazis. Yes, that's the funny part. They all hate each other, but they're all just Turkish. I don't understand why all these Turks are mad at each other. I hope nobody murders me because I said that. Yeah, uh, the the Ustasha were the were the uh, the guys who were most with the the Catholic Church was most directly involved in uh, in helping to flee Europe after World War II. It was called the Rat Line. It was a joint operation of the uh, the Catholic Church and the OSS to get the high level Ustasha guys, including Ante Pavlik, the head dude, out of uh, Croatia and into Latin America. It's pretty wild. I can see why there's hard feelings there. And then, of course, you have, like, the civil war between, like, the Chetniks and the, and the communists. Spider Network, indeed. That's real stuff.
I did like Syriana. Syriana was a was a good movie. It was one of the few uh, Hollywood products of the of the Bush era that I think hold up analytically in any way. I mean, obviously, it's very on the nose and sort of on its sleeve, and and simplified in many ways. But you know, it's got a a kind of social realist uh, uh, charm to it. And Clooney's very good in that as well. That that and that and Michael Clayton are my favorite Clooney performances. I think besides oh, oh, besides the stuff of the Coens, all of which I love. I love all of his stuff. And he's he's they're so good getting getting the 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 idiot out of him. I will say this about Clooney. Clooney has obviously made bad movies, and he is, you know, in his convictions and aesthetic preferences, he is a very staid, uh, uh, you know, lib. Like, clearly, you know, it, it, the bogest of standard libs you could get. And therefore, not terribly interesting when he sets out to create, like, uh, self-conscious works of art, like all of his directorial efforts and stuff. They're mediocre at best. But I will say this about the guy. One thing you can say about as a measure of a A-list actor's commitment to you know, actually trying to be a, an artist in some way, any way you can in that world, it's directly related to how often they play cops. And it's not because of any ab- ACAB bullshit or worrying about copaganda. It's just because police officer is the most boring, bog-standard job you can have in a movie. And movies where the protagonist as a cop tend to be boring and bog standard in some way. Because that's like the, the default thing is, hey, he's a cop doing X. And then you have implied drama and action. It's like, it's, it's just a big bowl of ice cream for everybody. Always. And so if you're always a cop, it's like you kind of don't really care about anything other than what people are going to want to watch. Uh, and Clooney has almost never played a cop. I think the only time he's played an actual, like, the closest thing to a cop was when he was a, a marshal in, um, a U.S. marshal, a desk guy, though, uh, in, um, Burn After Reading. So, I'll give him that. Like, look at a guy like Bruce Willis, on the other hand. He basically only plays cops. Just, just shoots half those movies while in his trailer. So I'll give I'll give Clooney that. I think he's still trying to do work, even if his instincts aren't that great. It's, there's intention behind it, which hey, is not true of most of those guys. So I'll give him the glad hand, TM Lex G. Yeah, I would like to get Tubin on to do some uh, some Supreme Court analysis, maybe. We could get him in a. He could. We could have him come out in a judge's robe that's cut off right above here, so it's actually just sort of like a judge's tank top, and you can see he's Winnie the Poohing it. Oh yeah, Clooney's also a big propagandist. I believe he actually like funded the creation of a uh, satellite to like. Uh, hover over Sudan to prevent the Sudanese from doing any more genocides, which I'm pretty sure is like part of some Rube Goldberg contraption of like neoliberal clampdown in Africa 
like some yeah, like it's part of the a spoke of some like surveillance wheel that's part of you know the Mali uh, you, uh, uh, installations and and like you know the special operations headquarters in Djibouti and the fucking predator war in Somalia and all that shit. Uh, but they're all they're all reptiles, of course. Their their morals are shit. I'm talking about I'm talking about the product. I'm talking about the product, you fucking people. We've gotten to the point where the personal is political has been so absorbed, and the idea of the Gramscian cultural hegemony being like the sole vector of reinforcement of capitalist relationships, that we get, we can't think in any terms other than uh, ideologically. Ooh, the best Halloween candy. Certainly not candy corn, which is disgusting uh, and vile, but of course, if it's on a table, I will eat it. If it is presented to me, it will be eaten by me. And I will at least one occasion, maybe two, give myself vampire fangs. That will happen, but I will not like it. I really, I gotta say, guys, I don't know if I like candy anymore. I think I ran out of candy love. I mean, I kind of got, I got gentrified taste now. Like, as soon as I got my first taste of, like, a, a, a dark chocolate-covered almond, I'm like, that's delicious. I want that. I don't want, I don't want Hershey's. It's, it's just too, it's cloying. I'm afraid I'm a sophisticate now. I'm a dreaded member of the PMC grifter overclass, which means I must have the finest sweets. I must get the four ninety nine tub of Trader's Joe. Uh, salt, salted, <coughs> dark chocolate covered almonds. Thoughts on Garibaldi? Uh, pimp. What other word do you want to describe him with? Uh, like, you could say that, like, John Brown was like the American Garibaldi. Uh, and Garibaldi just was operating in, in a little better uh, tactical environment. They both, they both had problematic age gaps in their relationships, though. And I would say to my Italian-American brothers and sisters that if you really have to have a day... You really got to have a day for you people. Uh, fine. Well, how about Garibaldi? He's right here. Hey, he's a Garibaldi. What's so wrong with him? Huh? He's a good. I mean, he's the guy who actually created the, an Italy in the first place for you guys to be Italian around. And I know the idea is like, well, Columbus like is the American part, but again, not United States of America, a concept of America that they don't encompass at all in their self-concept as Italian-Americans. It's an entirely different national identity from anything Columbus did. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Garibaldi did go to... He was in Argentina doing fucking revolutionary banditry and shit. Pimp. But I honestly don't know why the Italians need a guy. I mean... Who else has a day? The Irish have a day. I guess it's whoever was in, whoever was in the big ethnic East Coast machines that like ran the Democratic Party for a while. That was their version of identity politics. That was the identity politics part of the material, the care, the material and uh, cultural case uh, for the Democratic Party in the 20th century. Was yeah, we'll give you patronage jobs and suburban houses with union benefits, and also we give you a day for your people. Like I can just imagine FDR, like old patrician blue blood FDR going, yes, yes, would you guys, would you people like a day, perhaps? And they got to be like, yeah, we're part of the team, we're part of the ruling class. And it's like, yeah, sure you are, buddy. Thus perpetuating false consciousness. It's a devious game. But Germans don't have a day. I mean, Oktoberfest doesn't count. I'm sorry. And it's what? It's just because we fought a couple world wars against them? I'm sorry, but they make proportionally the largest percentage of, like, European extracted Americans. Now, uh, the whole thing is... I don't care about it either way, really. It's just kind of a thing that... Well, it's one of those things I have a hard time getting my mind in the... getting myself in the mindset of. Yo, God, how about an English day where we just eat disgusting potted meats? How about that? Fourth of July is the opposite of a British holiday. I guess technically because the people who did it were British citizens. Thoughts on the carbonari? I'll tell you right now, I could go for some chicken carbonari. Sounds delicious. Someone keeps asking me about nicotine. What? Why? How, how would you have me profitably discourse on nicotine? It's an addictive substance that is utilized in the sale of uh, tobacco-based products? They're a drug that has been successfully synthesized, its, it's uh, market has been successfully synthesized into the workings of uh, the above-board capitalist economy, unlike drugs like marijuana or cocaine or what have you scheduled narcotics but is essentially the same thing as a scheduled narcotic in terms of its market I 
I, I know I shouldn't respond when people just kind of respam re, re, comments, but that one was baffling just because it seems so left field and I was hoping maybe there'd be a follow-up, but it doesn't look like I'm getting a follow-up. It looks like, once again, I am lashed to the mast, uh, eternally to be tormented by the pelican-like shrieks and pecks of my demented followers as they fail to engage me in good faith on my Twitch streaming platform. Instead, finding it humorous to distract me with non-sequitur questions and trolling and also mistruths that lead me on uh, wild goose chases. But I understand. My, uh, the Twitch stream is sort of my instant karma, you know? It's like I'm getting back everything I put into the world as it happens. I know that's not technically accurate, but that's how it feels. All right, guys, I think I'm, uh, I'm done for the day. Maybe one more question before I say goodbye. Horror movie? I'm going to say uh, a movie that I just went on my uh, Your Kickstarter Sucks to talk about with uh, Jesse and uh, and at Dog Boner. I love that. I love that handle. Uh, Return of the Living Dead. Halloween classic. You can't go wrong with that one. Speaking of films that came out of the Romero uh, the branch off the Romero tree of zombie films. Great film. Check it out. Wonderful mix of horror and comedy. Wonderful effects. Great performances. The wonderful James Karen. We love to see him. And folks, here, look, Don Kalfa. It's Don Kalfa, folks. Look at him. He's Eddie Kaltenbruder. He's the more tradition, okay? He cuts up the bodies. And also, look at this. He's a Nazi. He's a Nazi mortician. It's crazy, folks. You wouldn't believe it was happening, but you gotta watch it. It's right there. Send more paramedics. Hey America, hey world, send more paramedics.